Well, I'd like us to open our Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 verse 7. And I'm going to be starting a series, or an identity series. Uh, I've titled the message this morning, Answering the Call. Answering the Call. Answering the Call. You know, the Bible says that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. In the book of Mark, when Jesus was teaching what we now know to be the parable of the soils, he said to them in verse 11 of Mark 4, he said, Unto you is given to know. Everyone say, Unto me is given to know. Say to your neighbor, Unto you is given to know. You don't have to be ignorant, neighbor. Oh, come on, talk to them this morning. You don't have to be ignorant, right, neighbor. You can have revelation. Uh, what you don't know will destroy you. He says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. But thank God we have the Holy Spirit, so he gives us revelation as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And book of Exodus chapter 3 verse 7, this is uh, when God called Moses and was sending him to Egypt to deliver his people. Verse 7 and 8 say, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So my people are uh, in bondage, my people are in oppression, and I have come to deliver them. Now look at the next chapter, um, chapter 4, verse 21. I'll read verses 21 to 23. Also in the same discourse as he's speaking to Moses about what he had called him to do and how he should go about what he had called him to do. In verse 21 of chapter 4, he says, And the Lord said to Moses, when you go to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, so he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed... I will kill your son, your firstborn. So, so God is very serious about delivering his people from bondage and oppression. You know, the Bible says that whatever is recorded in scripture has been written for our learning. That we, through the comfort of the scriptures, will have hope. So, this record of the plight of the children of Israel has been recorded in Scripture because there are some deep things that you and I are meant to learn from God's dealings with Israel. There are important lessons that we must learn from the story of Israel. Yes, there are lessons about God's faithfulness and His delivering power, but I believe that what God wants to, us to learn from this story is much deeper than that. Remember that their captivity in Egypt was actually allowed by God. It was God who gave Pharaoh the dream. It was God who gave Joseph or who sent Joseph he allowed Joseph to be captured and sold into captivity in Egypt and positioned him where he will interpret the dream of the butler. And he reminded the butler 
at the time when Pharaoh had a dream he couldn't interpret. We know that it was God that gave Joseph the wisdom to interpret the dream. And it was God that made Egypt the only place where food could be found in the world at the time, leading the whole world to Egypt to be fed. I mean, we know, for instance, in Genesis 41, 53 to 57, I'll read the verses to you. It says, then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the famine was in all lands. Everyone say all lands. But in the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth. Everyone say all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries, everyone say all countries. All countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. So it was God, by his divine purpose, that gave Egypt economic power. Yeah, God is at work here. Job said, it is he that makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He led Israel into Egypt. And he allowed them to be held in slavery for 400 years. The captivity of the Israelites was not incidental. Because hundreds of years before, God had already said to Abraham in Genesis 15. He said, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a strange land that is not theirs. And will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You know, God could have um, done this in another way. He could have given Jacob, the wisdom that there was going to be famine for seven years and given them a harvest and they didn't have to go into slavery, but the Lord allowed it. He chose to do things this way to fulfill his purpose and reveal his glory, but I believe that this story also serves as an illustrated sermon for all humanity. The lessons to be learnt from the slavery of the Israelites have direct application for us today. I believe that one of the key lessons from what happened to Israel is for mankind to understand that all mankind is in slavery. You know, the fall of Adam plunged mankind into a state of mortality that wasn't intended for us by God. The fall of Adam plunged mankind into a state of mortality that was not intended by God. If you consider the language of Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, and the words used in Genesis 3 to describe the new reality that Adam and Eve found themselves as a result of what they had done, you'll see that their new state is defined by oppression, by domination, and suffering. We see for the first time in scripture, words like toil being mentioned. Words like shame. Words like sorrow. Thorns. Ending in the phrase, God drove them out from the garden. The language paints the picture of bondage and suffering. In Romans chapter 5, God giving the Apostle Paul revelation. If you read Romans 5 verse 12 to 14, Paul says that through the sin of one man, through one man, sin came into the world and death came in. Verse 14 talks about death reigning 
The word reign is the Greek word basileo, which means as a king. So death came in as a king to dominate humanity and put humanity under oppression. In verse 18 of Romans 5, the Bible says, Judgment came to all men as a result of sin. And that judgment led to condemnation. Humanity was sentenced to serve as a slave under the reign of death. Mortality. The word mortal means to be subject to death. Mortality is an oppressive master to which we are enslaved and for which God must set us free. You know, the thing about slavery is that the trauma that comes with it is always experienced most by the one who is taken into slavery as compared to the one who is born a slave. The person who is taken into slavery suffers the most trauma. Because the one taken into slavery knows the freedom that he has lost. He has a contrasting point of reference. Which accentuates his sense of loss and pain. You know, I watched a movie a few months ago. Which is based on a true story. The movie is titled 12 Years a Slave. And it was a Nigerian that starred in the movie. Chiwetel Ejiofor, and he, 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 he acted this role of an, an African-American who lived in the 1800s by the name Solomon Northup. Now, this was a man who was born free. He lived as a violinist in Saratoga, New York. He had a family. He enjoyed life. He lived a middle-class life. But then in 1841, he was abducted or kidnapped and sold into slavery and worked in the plantations of Louisiana for 12 years before his release. With every lash on his back and with every act of subjugation that he endured, it couldn't compare with the horror of remembering what he had lost. The other slaves desired a freedom they had never had, but he longed for a freedom he had lost. You know, in this regard, I believe that Adam and Eve were the only ones that were truly able to understand in literal terms the horror of living in mortality. After all, they once lived in a dimension where they will walk with God every day. They once lived in a world that had complete and unrestricted, where they had complete and unrestricted access to the mind of God. They once stood as kings under God, ruling and governing all that God had created. You know, yesterday as I was meditating on this, uh, it came up in my heart, I wonder what language they spoke. Before languages were confused at Babel, it wasn't English they spoke. It wasn't Greek. It wasn't Hebrew. But they had an expression that was greater than our current expression because language limits, determines vocabulary and limits expression, does it not? So when Adam said to Eve, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the way he communicated that had full expression. You know, the problem for those who were born as slaves is that unlike Adam, they have nothing to compare it with. Because slavery is all they have ever known. And as a result, it is easier to live and accept the life that it offers, even though it is way below 
where God intended them to be. And that is the position all humanity born after Adam have found themselves. You know, if you and I were to describe to Adam an ideal life that we could paint. I mean, think about the best life that you can have on planet Earth. You know, Adam will consider it something that pales in comparison to the life before the fall. If you were to ask Adam to describe life here in time, he would see it as slavery to an oppressive master. For those who are born in slavery, it is easier to become satisfied with the things that life offers us. To pursue the pleasures of the world. Soon the slavery system tells us who we are. It gives us our values, our aspirations, and we can even end up living a false happy life. In a system that has in fact enslaved us into thinking that pig's food is a king's feast. And this is exactly what the Israelites were in ancient Egypt. And this is what we are like today. We live... In a bondage to time, separated from our Father, who is in eternity. And the only way we will ever be released is through a violent spiritual confrontation of this system of slavery by God. You know, it's important to understand what is going on. Because if you don't understand what is going on, your relationship with God can be very frustrating. Because ladies and gentlemen, yes, God wants you to have that car and that house and that wife. But you know, that's not his primary um, focus. What God is doing is he is dismantling the systems that are enslaving us. Because he wants to liberate us into the glorious liberty that belongs to the sons of God. You know, and when we look at the Israelites and their interaction with God, we can see a perfect mirror of what is happening around us and what is happening to us. Because, you know, being set free from slavery is one thing. I mean, you need to be set free from slavery, but being set free from slavery is one thing. And it's something totally separate from thinking like a free man or acting like a free man. I mean, sociologists and historians will tell you that, you know, just because you set somebody free from slavery doesn't mean that the slavery is set free from them. It's a totally different process. It takes a lot of time. So the experience of being set free physically is different from the experience of being set free mentally and spiritually and in lifestyle. You know, when the children of Israel were set free, you could see that there was still a lot of work to be done. I, I just picked out a few verses of scripture that um, sort of captures some of their thinking. Here are people that were set free when they got to the, the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, 11, it says... And they said to Moses, because there were no, no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is it not the word we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we would die in the wilderness. So here are people who are set free from slavery. Here are people that God is leading into a destiny, but the process of getting to that place of destiny is so misunderstood that they are, they are, they are clutching to a false system that promised them liberty in the midst of slavery. 
In Numbers 11 verse 4 it says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. You know, the Lord's ultimate purpose is not to give you a good life in Egypt. The Lord's ultimate purpose is to set you free from Egypt and lead you into the liberated life of living and walking with Him. You know, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, the Bible says that we should give thanks to God who has qualified us and He has made us partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You know, when Jesus came, He came to destroy the works of the devil. And the Bible says through his death, burial, and resurrection, he delivered us from the authority of darkness. And he planted us into the kingdom of his dear son. We have been delivered. We have been set free. But being separated from slavery is very different from living as a free man. From living in the dimension of life that God has called us to. From understanding what God is doing and ascending to the life that God has ordained for us. You know, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I mean, they were a church where they had the gifts of the Spirit in manifestation. But the Bible talks about them being a carnal church. So they had been delivered but their life was still dominated by the flesh, dominated by the things of the earth. They were still interwoven with the systems of this world. Even though they had been set free spiritually, they, they had not moved away and ascended to the liberty that God has ordained for us in Christ. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about how it is re reported amongst them that there is sexual immorality and such sexual immorality that is not even named among the Gentiles where a man is sleeping with his father's wife. They were set free, but they were still living carnal lives. You know, as Christians, through the mercy of God and revelation of the Holy Spirit, we must see the misery of life in mortality so that we can stop desiring a mortal life. So that we can stop desiring and allowing ourselves to be enslaved by the things of this earth. Because we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Hallelujah. You know, 400 years is a long time to be in slavery. 400 years is a long time to be in slavery. And there are certain things that the system of slavery imposes. And you know, as people who have been set free, we must recognize that, oh, this is the system of slavery. You know, when you have been in slavery for 400 years, everything you know is slavery. Your parents were in slavery. Your grandparents went slavery. The things they taught you in school are based on a system of slavery. You're a slave. Hallelujah. Well, maybe you shouldn't be saying hallelujah to that. 400 years is a long time to be in slavery. And as Christians who have been delivered, we must recognize that everything that we are doing, the context we're in, is a slavery context. We must question everything. We must compare everything to what God says in his word is the standard of the kingdom. We must refuse to allow our lives to be dominated by anything from this world. Because it is a lie and it's going to keep you in slavery. Hallelujah. That's why Paul said to Timothy, you should stand in the liberty 
that Christ has made you free. And don't allow yourself again to be entangled in the yoke of slavery. You know, one thing slavery does is that the system of slavery depended on a systematic destruction of anything that would result in any kind of social cohesion or unity amongst people. Because if you have slaves and they are united, there is a likelihood that um, they will revolt. Okay? So the system of slavery sought to separate people. Tribes were separated. Families were broken up. People who spoke the same language were broken up. Slavery enforced a type of individual survival where they thought about themselves first rather than others. And we see this same fragmentation, this same self-focus, an absence of corporate identity in the church as a result of our enslavement to a fallen world. So it's like, well, I can praise the Lord with you, but don't come too close. That is slavery mentality. Okay, you know, I like everyone to mind their own business. That is slavery mentality. You know, one of the first things that God said to Paul in Ephesians 4, when he was talking about how God has sent apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the church, he said it's to bring us to the unity of the faith. Everyone say unity of the faith. To bring us to the oneness of our knowledge of the Son of God. He's working with us together as a body. That is kingdom mentality. Are you with me? Slavery mentality says, I, I, I can do it on my own. I can pray on my own. I can seek God on my own. You can't do it without me. Because God has ordained that the grace that's going to help you to grow is going to come through the body of Christ. When a brother prays, God is going to answer that prayer through somebody else. When somebody is in need, God is going to raise somebody else in the body to get up and begin to pray for them. The unity of the faith. That is kingdom mentality. Anything that seeks to separate us. Any experience that makes you embrace a value where it's isolatory. Where it's me and myself. I will do it on my own. It is slavery mentality. <sighs> you know, I had a meeting a few weeks ago with some, some guys in my house. And we're talking about strategies. As a church. And somebody said, you know, I'm not really sure I can partner with you guys because we, we may not believe the same. And that surprised me. I apologize. I use everything as part of my sermon when the Lord reminds me. Chandai. Say, well, I'm not sure I believe with you. Like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, well, you know, there's some doctrines that... We may not quite share. You know, Paul says that if we are growing in God, we will come together in the unity of the faith. Paul said in Philippians 3.15, he says that those who are spiritually mature must agree on these things. Are you with me? God is bringing all of us to a place of agreement, not a place of fragmentation. Anything that pushes you toward fragmentation is of the mentality of darkness. Let's move on. All master-slave relationships are governed by one law. A slave must conform to the master's concept of who he is. The purpose of the force and brutality of slavery is to reinforce this law. We will beat you until you conform 
to who we say you are. All principles of slavery are based on this concept. You know, the very first time that um, Moses approached Pharaoh and expressed a contrary view to that of Egypt and said, you know, these people belong to God. Let my people go. The very first time he expressed a contrary opinion. You know, Pharaoh gave instructions in Exodus chapter 5 verse 9. He gave instructions to the taskmasters to increase their burden. Because he says, you know what? Let them make bricks without straw. And in Exodus 5 verse 9, he says, load them down with more work. This is the New Living Translation. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to lies. He says, load them with more work. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to lies. And as soon as Moses and Aaron left the court of Pharaoh, the elders of the church of Israel came to them and said, in verse 21, may the Lord judge and punish you for making us stink before Pharaoh and his officials. You have put a sword in our hands, an excuse to kill us. So the people that God is moving to set free are actually cooperating with the taskmasters because as soon as the word of their deliverance is coming, the pressure is increased. The increase of life pressure was geared toward accomplishing one thing. That will teach them not to listen to lies. As soon as you start hearing the word of God, you know you're born again. Or you might not be. As soon as the word of God comes to you, it doesn't matter if you're born again and you're hearing the word about, about um, faith or prosperity. Are walking in the Holy Spirit. As soon as you begin to hear the word, the Bible says persecution, affliction will arise because of the word. It's like, oh, you think you can be set free? You think, pile on a little bit, pile on more load. That will teach them to listen to lies. Hallelujah. And then the affliction comes. You believed God for that job and you didn't get it. You believed God for that husband and the guy jilted you at the altar. The affliction comes and then you conform. Hallelujah. The affliction will arise. The affliction will what? It will arise. But if you embrace what God is saying about you, because it's an issue of identity. When the word of God started coming, Israel was confronted with an identity issue. Am I going to believe what God is saying about me? Or am I going to believe what Pharaoh is saying about me? It is an issue of identity. It is an issue of identity. Wrong identity was the first prison that God needed to smash. Without a correct identity, there can be no journey forward. Breaking through the strongholds of a wrong identity and establishing God's identity is the first step to exit. The first step to exit from a life that is shackled by mortality. From an existence that is bound by space and time. The right identity. As we read earlier in Exodus 4.22. God said to Moses, say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son. Hallelujah. 
He says, Israel is my son. Israel is my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. I mean, can you imagine what that sounds like to the ears of somebody who has been in slavery for 400 years? That I have a father. They have to embrace this value in the midst of their slavery. It was an identity, a call from heaven in the context you might be broke, you might be sick, you might be sorry. But hear the word of God from heaven. God is saying to you, you are my son. You are my firstborn. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you were born. I don't care who your father is. I don't care where you were educated. God is saying, I give birth to you. I am the one that determines and defines your scope, your destiny. You come from me. If you want to know who you are, look at me. Because we were born in slavery, we don't know who we are. It is only the word of God that can define for us who we are. There are no examples to look at in our context. He says, I've delivered you from the authority of darkness. But now on the inside, you need to embrace your identity. Because if you are set free from slavery, and you still think like a slave, and act like a slave, guess what? You are a slave. Galatians 4.1 says, the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a slave even though he is Lord of all. You know, a firstborn has status. He cannot be a slave or subject to oppression. Even though their physical circumstances had not changed, their self-concept had to change first and be conformed to what was God was declaring over their lives. To accept that they were firstborn sons of God, Israel had to begin to question their position of servitude. If you embrace the fact that you're a firstborn, then every position of servitude you will question. Hallelujah. They began to question their position of servitude. They began to develop a disdain for anything Egyptian. They began to reject the opinion of ancient Egypt as false and irrelevant. Loyalties began to shift. Investments began to be directed away from the false system of Egypt toward an eternal future in God. Their way of thinking began to change. Their investments began to change. A correct identity will disconnect us from the system that God is judging and plug us into the life that flows to us from eternity. We'll disconnect from the system. Hallelujah. You know, we're in a world where, you know, like I said earlier, the Bible says that we're in the world but not of the world. But you know, we are in the world though. And you're going to be inundated with the categorizations of the world. And you know, the world classifies you by your gender, your socioeconomic status, where you went to school, um, how much money you have, your state of origin or your country of origin. You're going to be bombarded with all that. But in the midst of all that, you need to receive another identity that is of God. Amen. Look at Numbers chapter 3. You need to understand what God is doing in the earth. Look at Numbers 3 verse 13. 
Hallelujah. Oh, blessed be God. There is a sound from heaven. There is a sound from heaven. God is speaking his word to his people. You might not know Jesus. You might know Jesus. The same sound is coming to you. God is saying, you are my son. You are my son. You are not flesh and blood. You come from me. You are my son. You have my identity. And I have come to call you back to myself. To live like me. Verse 13 of Numbers 3 says, Because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So he says, on the day that I, um, that I struck the firstborn of Egypt, on that same day, I sanctified my firstborn. You know, we need to understand that the world is going to get darker and darker. The values of the world are going to get darker and darker and more twisted and twisted. Don't pray that the crisis abates because it's going to get worse. It really is. It really is. But there is a solution. The solution is in Christ. The day of crisis is the day of identity. As, the, as Egypt was going through crisis, the people of God were getting a clearer understanding of who they were and they were taking their position. As the world gets darker and darker, the children of God are going to have the opportunity to embrace their identity. The day of crisis is the day of identity. God is calling us as his firstborn. And that understanding should fill us with joy and faith and a strong sense of responsibility. We must change and become the firstborn that God says we are. We must align ourselves with his definitions and his standards because much is riding on our obedience. The Bible says that the earth is groaning, waiting for a manifestation of the sons of God. It is as the sons of God take their place and demonstrate the wisdom and the power of God in the earth that the world is going to see our light and, and be drawn to the saving grace of the Savior. These are great days to be alive. These are great days to be alive. It is impossible to be the firstborn and remain a slave. Hallelujah. It is impossible to be the firstborn and remain a slave. You know, uh, in the, you know the director of, uh, what's this Hollywood director's name? That does all these uh, violent movies. Quentin Tarantino. Recently, he, or a few years ago, he had a movie called Django Unchained. And Django was about a, a slave who was set free. And he was casting for the role of Django. And he casted uh, Jamie, Jamie Foxx. Jamie typically earns like a seven-figure income for every movie. So he probably drove to the set in a Ferrari. He's black, he has the correct color, but he's never been a slave in his life. So here is somebody casting him to act like a slave. And when he tried the first scene, Quentin came to him and said, you know, this is the reason why I didn't want to cast one of the Hollywood elite. Because you don't, you, you can't embrace the values of slavery, you know, you're, you're, because you are not a slave. Are you with me? You're not a slave. When, when you embrace the identity of a son of God, you, you know, this is not something that you need to look to people for reference points. You know, God said about Job, he said there is nobody like him on the earth. There is nobody like him on the earth. He said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
he is blameless, upright, he, he, he fears God and shuns evil, and there is no one. Everyone say no one. What does no one mean? It means a singular standard. Somebody on earth that caused a turbulence in the spirit. His actions caused a discussion at the highest levels of spiritual life. The way he lived his life was a pattern of sonship that caused great turbulence in the realm of the spirit. There was nobody like him. So if you're going to embrace what God is saying about you, you must embrace the truth that you will live a singular standard. God said to Noah, you know, if you read the book of the, the writings about Noah, the Bible says that God looked at the earth and he, he regretted that he created man. He said that their thoughts and imaginations were evil continually. And he, it grieved him that he made man. But, everyone say but. He said, but Noah. And the Bible says, Noah was a righteous man. The only blameless man. Are you with me? So if we're going to hear the call of God, we're going to have to go to the word. And embrace who he says we are. And as we begin to do that, it is going to change the way you think. It is going to change the way you speak. It is going to change the way you act. It is going to change the way you invest. It is going to change your priorities. And in this realm of time, you will begin to live like a son of God. Because you have been set free already. Hallelujah. Couple more scriptures and I will close. Trying to make up for the fact that I've been here, I've been here for three weeks. Look at Colossians 1.18. There's a couple of verses. Hallelujah. Oh, there is a sound. There is a sound. And we're being confronted with two identities. Are you going to accept what the world is saying about you? Or are you going to accept what God is saying about you? Are you going to settle for a false good life? Or are you going to embrace what God has said and push through and live the life that God has called you to live? In Colossians 1.18, the Bible says, He, speaking about Jesus, He is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn? From the dead. In all things, he may have preeminence. It says he is the head of the church. That means the church is his. I'm sorry, if he is the head, that means the church is his body. Yeah? Have you ever seen a situation where somebody is walking down the road and they say, Oh, that is Ayo's head walking down the road and that is Erima's body. Wow, just look at the unity between that head and that body. Never happens, right? Because the head and the body are called by the same name. The head and the body are called by the same name. The Bible says that he is the head of the body and he is the firstborn. The word firstborn is the Greek word protua, which means supremacy, first place, high rank, prominence. The Bible says in Romans 8, 7 that we are heirs of God and co-heirs. Everyone say co-heirs. Co-heirs with Christ. The Bible says in Romans 8.29, that him who he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to, the, to be the image of his son, to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Many brethren. So everything Christ is, we are. If you want to see an example of who we are as sons of God, look at Christ. If you want an example of who you are, look at Christ. I'm going to say that again. If you want to see an example of who you are, look at Christ. If you want to see an example of who God has made you to be, look at Christ. There was one time a few years ago, I was meditating the Word, and the Lord challenged me. He said, he said I want you to read the book of John, the Gospel of John. And when you're meditating on the Gospel of John, and you're walking with Jesus... You know, when you meditate, you are muttering and you are seeing a picture of a scripture. And what I used to do before this was, um, for instance, if Jesus 
was laying hands on the, the, the person with leprosy. I will be the person with leprosy, and I'll be looking for grace from Jesus. You know, in your meditation, your picture, you're meditating. Or he's saying, you know, he's feeding the 5,000, and I'm the guy with the bread, giving it to him, and I'm watching to see how the miracle was performed. And the Lord challenged me and said, every time you are meditating, rather than being the recipient, be Jesus. Now, that's going to that's gonna change your life. Because Jesus is a pattern of who we are. He came to demonstrate who the Son of God is. You are a firstborn son. Hallelujah. You are what? Firstborn son. It is inaccurate to say Jesus is the firstborn and we are number five million. No, you are co-heirs. A co-heir means that you have the same right as him. Are you with me? The firstborn is the one that, is, that qualifies for a double inheritance. You are a co-heir, not an heir. A co-heir. A co-heir means that you are one with him. He is the head, you are the body. Everything he is, you are. Hallelujah. And you are created to be that in this time. Amen. So we must answer the call. All humanity is in slavery. We live in a context of slavery. But the word of God is coming saying you are Israel. You are my firstborn son. Hallelujah. We must embrace that identity. We must embrace that identity. And that is the first step to exit. Amen. Exit from mortality in this time. Jesus exited from mortality even though he walked on the earth. Are you with me? Exit from mortality in this time. That's why the Bible says that we were raised with him and seated with him at the right hand of, of God on high. Far above all principality and power. The firstborn is never dominated. That is where you are now. That is your place of authority. You don't have to be seated physically in heaven to enjoy the authority of heaven. Every God doesn't have to be in his office to exercise the, the rulership of that position. They just say, oh, guys, not on seat. All the angels are saying about you right now is that you're not on seat, but you're on the earth. You're not on seat, but you're on the earth. The authority of heaven belongs to you. The authority of Christ belongs to you. You are a firstborn son. You are created not to be dominated. You are created to rule and reign with Christ.